This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome, welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm barely here. I am here. Uh, I have a big show for you today, folks. We have a huge team. We have four guests in total. We're going to be talking about something about uh, gravy waves, apparently. Very important. <laughs> and uh, in order to help us do that, I have in the studio uh, Dr. Ailey. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Welcome back. Good to have you back. Thank you. This is your first full year now. You've got to work is. hard. It is. It's, uh, yeah, new year, new start. Yeah, indeed. Uh, speaking of old, Chris KP. <laughs> How are you doing? Yes. <laughs> you well? Uh, yeah, I'm alright. Yeah, yeah. Still got a job? Yes, yes. Good to hear. Don't tell anybody, they haven't realised. <laughs> no, that's good. And Dr. Jen, good morning. Good morning. I don't know much about gravy, does that matter? That, uh, we're going to have it all explained in a few moments. Phew. We Excellent. have Liv doing our Twitter feed, um, typing in the red knot. She's going to zip out in a minute to get someone on the phone, but uh, it will all be fun. So hang with us. Uh, we're, we've got you now until 12 o'clock and we will then hand over to Edith. But in the studio, we have Professor Rachel Webster. Rachel is the Head of Astrophysics at the University of Melbourne and um, an old friend and my first ever research supervisor. You're making me sound very old, Shane. <laughs> and no, very no. Well, it could have been last week for all people know. You just wrecked it. Uh, <laughs> now, I remember years ago, you, uh, I, I found out that you were somehow involved and may have led the first look at gr- what was called gravitational microlensing in astronomy. For, let's start there. I want to know what you know. Tell people about that. Okay. Yeah. No. That's that's absolutely true. So, so, so basically, when we have a, a mass in space, it actually changes the shape of the space, or we sometimes say space time. And instead of light travelling in straight lines, it actually goes around. It bends and goes around corners, and <clears throat> this effect. Can uh, so, so the the mass causing that change in the space time can be something big like a you know billion solar mass black hole, or mm-hmm. in fact a star it will also bend the space around it. So, for example, the the space around the sun is actually bent by mm-hmm. just a little bit. But you know, if we took the sun and made it a little bit more compact, it would bend the space near it even more, right? So the closer in you get to a compact mass, the more the bending occurs. So gravitational microlensing, the micro bit is important. It sort of means a millionth, and mm. and it's where you can have a, a star actually changing how a quasar will look on the other side of the universe, um, which is quite extraordinary. Um, so instead of the quasar looking as it normally would, the light has been bent and changed and magnified, mm. and, and that's the bit that we pick up on. So I want a really probably ignorant question from someone who's not an astrophysicist. I've heard this term space-time a lot over the past week in particular. What exactly is space-time as opposed to space and time? <laughs> well, it, it is, in fact, just space and time put together. But uh, what Einstein tells us is that we can't treat them separately. So we can't take the time away from the space uh, because the two interact in a in a very um, interesting way. Uh, and depending on how you're measuring things in space, it 
it, dep- it actually depends on the velocity that you're travelling at. Um, so we link the two together in something that we call space-time. Now, it's been just over 100 years now. It was uh, 1915, I think, wasn't it, that Einstein put out his yep. theory of general relativity. And at the time, um, there were no iPhones, there were no computers, there were no transistors. Um, I'm not sure, was it stone knives and bearskins? It was pretty simple stuff back then. <laughs> and he, he very famously stated that he never, ever thought that these gravitational waves or gravy waves that you use Gra- to gravy waves yeah, yeah, gravity, gravity waves, waves um, were actually uh, de- going to be detectable in you know by humans because they were just so difficult to see tell us a bit first about why we would get something like a gravitational wave and, and what that is okay so so we've just talked about mass changing the shape of space time right and it, it, you know if you have just a black hole, uh, you know, it's it's a static change to the space-time. Mm-hmm. But suppose now that we have two masses orbiting each other, so they're actually, you know, moving around, it means that the shape of the space-time is changing as the objects orbit, okay? And it, and or, or we say there's an acceleration involved. And, and where you have that accelerating change, that the changes in the space-time propagate out in a wave. And it, it's just like having a, a charged particle, like an electron, mm-hmm. accelerating. And when it does that, it sends out an electromagnetic wave or a photon mm-hmm. or you know, a particle of light. It's just, exa- down, just down at the synchrotron. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Synch- it's exactly the mm-hmm. same as the synchrotron, except here we're dealing with gravity instead of electromagnetic phenomena, mm-hmm. right? And... And the, the really cool thing, is, so it's predicted by very similar equations and it says that the gravity wave will go out at the speed of light. Yeah. Okay, so it's a, it's a perturbation, you know, a change in the space-time that propagates out at the speed of light from wherever it's been generated. So but we, we obviously don't feel these. I mean, I mean, there are planets going around our, our sun all the yes. time, so we have moving masses, but we don't see, we don't feel or... Uh, are not able to interact with these gravity waves in any way. No. <laughs> why, why is that, Rachel? Because they're absolutely tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny, 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 so small. So the effect would be, if you imagine if you held your hands up and, and you know, could hold them very steady, if a gravity wave went by, then the, sp- the space between your hands would change. It would oscillate um, as the gravity wave went by. But that change, that oscillation, is about one part in 10 to the 21. So in, the, in other words, <laughs> you know what that means. That's one That's over little. one with, yeah, yeah. with 21 zeros. So this is, it, it, it's about um, a Ten thousandth of the size of a proton um, that we're looking to measure. Okay, so given that we can't image a proton, you know, we're looking for an incredibly small change. So, so yeah, well, really small, really, really, small. really, really small. Now, I want to bring uh, Professor Sue Scott from ANU uh, in on this conversation as well because um, we are talking about something here that's pretty funky, and they've been doing some great work. Sue, can you hear us up there? Yes, I can hear you. Um, now, Professor Sue Scott is from the Research School of Physi- Physics and Engineering at ANU and has been involved in this project. Sue, just to bring you up to speed here, we're, we're talking with Professor Rachel Webster from Melbourne University and she's giving us a bit of an idea of why we're potentially seeing these gravity waves. Um, I might get you to speak a little bit to the experiment that's helped us detect them um, just over the... or well, announced this week, but last September. How exactly does this experiment work? Okay, so basically we're dealing with two interferometers which are based in the United States, one in Louisiana and one in Washington State. And these are L-shaped 
detectors and each arm of the L is four kilometres in length. And inside those arms we have what is probably the, the best vacuum in the universe. So it's extremely well evacuated. And we use a laser to go through a beam splitter at the corner of the L and send laser beams up and back the two arms and they interfere with each other back at the center. Now we have two um, free test masses in each arm, one at the beginning, one at the end, and they are very carefully suspended mirrors. And basically the instruments just sit there, they're nascent, and they wait for a gravitational wave to pass through them. And when the gravitational wave passes through one, it stretches one arm and then alternately the other arm. And this causes an interference pattern which we can detect as being the passage of a gravitational wave. Now, Sue, so you, you mentioned that these are the, the length of this experiment is how many kilometres? Each arm is four kilometres in length. Four kilometres in length. Is, is it physically that size or are you playing some optical tricks there as well? No, it's actually, it's physically that size. They're, they're, they're huge. I mean, it's, mm. it's one of the biggest physics experiments on Earth, if not the biggest. Yeah. And, and why do you have two of them? You, you mentioned there were two, and they're quite separated, I think, in the US, aren't they? Yes, they're separated by um, several thousand miles, as the Americans say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we could still um, say several thousand kilometres. I think it's still true. That's correct. And... Uh, <laughs> The reason is um, because not only are these instruments nascent and they just sit there and you don't point them, you just wait, but they don't have a very good directionality. So when a gravitational wave passes through one of them, basically you don't know where it's come from. Okay. So if you have two, um, if the, the signal will pass through each of them, but there will be a time delay... Uh, you know, equivalent to the passage of the time of light between the two detectors, and that will give you some directionality on the actual source in the sky. Mm. And obviously, if you had more of these detectors placed around the world, then you get better directionality. But with the current event, we can pin it down to an annulus on the sky. Right. Of course, so one of the other critical things about having two of these detectors is the redundancy, right? You've seen it in one, you've seen it in the second one, and you damn well want to see it in both of them if you want to be sure that you've mm. detected it. And, and, Rachel, coming back to that, I mean, we, we've, we've heard there's this one signal that's been detected from September. You mentioned before that things like planets and single stars and that just aren't big enough to create gravitational waves that we could detect. So... What is big enough, and how often should we detect one of these these waves going past? Well, Sue will probably have the numbers much more on her fingertips than I do, but the predictions to date have largely been around uh, coalescing neutron stars, which are m much less massive than the event that has been um, published. Uh, but but it's a, it's a fairly high detection rate. Sue, you might like to tell us exactly how many of those... LIGO, advanced LIGO should be detecting. That's right. Well, um, with the previous version of the instrument, we were looking at possibly getting an event at once or twice a year, and so it was therefore very unlikely to actually achieve detection then. But with the upgraded instruments and uh, the first science run, which we've just completed, 
was the first upgrade and, and there will be further ones. But with the first upgrade, we were looking, thinking our detection rate was, was likely going to be about one or two per month. Wow, that's that's quite a lot. And at what point, uh, you mentioned you, you sort of narrowed it down to a bit of an annulus in the sky. At, at what point, uh, what do we need in order to narrow that down further? Because I can imagine this, this opens up a sort of new area of astronomy where you're starting to look at objects in, the, in, in space now according to their gravitational properties instead of just their optical properties that we've been using for so long. So all of a sudden now you can start, I, I, would, I would assume, to interrogate things based on, on gravity. Is that, is that right? That's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that uh, my group work, works on is actually um, pinning down the region of sky where we get... Um, you know, from the signals we get in our detectors to a smaller region so that, you know, we have better chance of actually working out where it is and if it has a corresponding electromagnetic signal. Mm. And that's one of the, the big uh, arms of the project is to use the astronomy community to take part in this to look when we get a trigger in the gravitational wave detectors to send that very quickly to our astronomy partners to to look for um, an electromagnetic signature for the signal in light, for instance, if, if it's a suspected supernova or something like that. Mm. And, and, of course, Sue, one of the really fascinating things about the announcement uh, on Thursday is that uh, it's the coalescence of two very large black holes by the standards that we're used to talking about. So one's 29 solar masses and one's 36. You know, you know, astrophysicists haven't been talking about black holes of this size in the past. Um, you know, we've, we've tended, you know, most of the detections we have are around the 10 solar mass or less, uh, Mark. And so already we've got an event that wasn't part of what we were expecting i would hazard mm. and so so what does this mean in in terms of sort of the, the you know we've been talking about you know testing einstein's theory of general relativity for a long time i mean is this the sort of final nail in the coffin for that testing or does it continue i mean this this is testing it in i can imagine a region of space which is extreme i mean we're not talking about small masses here this is you know the most extreme conditions you could not even imagine um does that mean we're pretty much done and dusted good job einstein we're going to stop trying to falsify your theories yeah well what it means is you're quite right up until this point we've only been able to perform basic uh tests in the weak field regime which is like tests in the solar system which Mm. we've done you know quite early and the theory passed those with flying colours. But we've never been able to really test it in a strong gravity regime like in these cataclysmic events in the universe to which you're referring, you know, like two black holes coalescing or a a big supernova going off or something like that. Mm. So this, this observation has been an amazing test for the theory because it has passed it. Um, beautifully, I mean, the waveform that was calculated um, for such an event like this matched beautifully the signal. It was like incredible match. And so it has performed a, a very significant test. Now, we'll want to go on and do further tests of the, the theory in the strong field regime, but it's, it's looking incredibly good. Mm. Look, it's, it's fabulous work, Sue. I might, um, we're going to keep Rachel in here for a few more minutes, but I might thank you for speaking to us and congratulations to you and all the team at ANU. And I, I, I guess there's about a um, hundred institutions involved in this work around the world, isn't there? It's quite a, a significant team. 
Yes, that's right. There's um, about 100 institutions and about 1,200 scientists and engineers. Mm. So it has been a, a very big endeavour and everybody's part has been important, in fact. Yeah, fabulous. Look, I can imagine this is just opening the door. There's so much new science and I hope you have a good time doing it. It's an exciting period and thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you very much too. It's Professor Sue Scott from the Research School of Physics and Engineering at the Australian National University up in Canberra. So, Rachel, I sent a message out on our Facebook site during the week that this was the most significant piece of science ever done in the history of humanity. A couple of bio people, uh, (laughs) might have been been Dr Jen's husband actually, um, you know, gave me a bit of stick over that. But, I mean, where, where does this rank? I mean, this seems to be the first time we've really sort of reached out to, as you said, such a distance to such an extraordinary set of objects and and nailed down one of the critical elements of the universe? Uh, Look, I don't think we can underestimate how important this is because, you know, nearly everything that we know about the universe comes to us through electromagnetic radiation. Uh, So we, we... I won't say we understand that at at a fundamental Mm -hmm. level, but we certainly understand how to interact with it, right? What this has given us is a fundamentally new way of interacting with the universe. And, And indeed, you know, the predictions are that gravitational waves will tell us what happened in the first, um, fractions of a second and Mm. i I won't tell you how many noughts that's got but of the universe right so gravitational waves will be produced at that time so we can go way back beyond the cosmic microwave background and see you know physical events happening that so far we've just used equations to Mm. describe so so it is uh you know uh, uh, some of the scientists have been saying we've been using our eyes and now we're going to use our ears um but it, it it's you know it's a fundamentally new way of observing the universe and it would seem to also just throw a great breath of fresh air into into the physics community in terms of the fact that there is just so much physics that's not yet done whereas i know a lot of people look at it as a very old science and you know maybe not that interesting anymore but th- i mean this is just blown it wide open again hasn't it's it? it's completely blown it wide open and and what's i think very exciting as well is that it's required huge technical innovation to get there you know those measurements that mm. sue was describing are not are very very difficult to make and and so you've got some of the most creative and enthusiastic minds figuring out how to do this the technology spin-offs out of this are going to be fantastic and and of course we've just the tip of the iceberg you know now that we know they're there now that we know mm. we can do it we're going to start building observatories that can do this yeah. uh there's already plans for a space observatory that will yeah. do this because obviously going into space alleviates you know don't have to worry about little earthquakes and things yep. like that if you've got free-floating satellites uh not an not a cheap experiment um, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um <laughs> but potentially very exciting yeah. I, one of the things i found a little sad is that you know in many cases for australia we've been able to say you know we're, we're the only southern hemisphere observing site that's stable and so forth a great site to mm. to put telescopes with with gravitational waves that doesn't matter though does it they can just go anywhere is that right well well the best place is to go up into yeah, space yeah. right um uh well no i mean though you don't want to put it in regions that are unstable you know preferably mm. uh, uh we did have an invitation to have the third ligo instrument in australia about three years ago um it did require um 
perhaps of order $100 million to do it. The US were going to put all the technical equipment yep. in, but we had to do all the site work. Um, I think we spent $100 million on our political advertising um, Yeah, campaigns. I think that's yeah. probably yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, Let's it was. Let's all get depressed. <laughs> oh, boy. Wow. Well, hopefully we'll get something of that nature in the future, but I, I, I can imagine a vast quantity of new research grant applications being written across the world mm. now that we are sure that gravitational waves are detectable. Rachel, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us, and um, I hope it continues to be an exciting time when you update your curriculum for all the students now that... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of new lectures to write before next week. Thanks, Shane. Now, uh, that was Professor Rachel Webster, the Head of Astrophysics at the University of Bowen. Three, triple, You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We've uh, not been discussing gravitational waves during the break. Uh, we thought we would just put a ban on that for the rest of the show. You're a fibber. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have another guest in the studio. Dr. Bradley McColl is from the Cell and Gene Therapy Laboratory down at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute on the Melbourne Children's Campus. Bradley, welcome to the studio of Triple R. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, you work in the area of thalassemia and sickle cell disease. Before we get into what you're doing, give us a bit of an idea of what those conditions are and how they affect the kids that you interact with. Okay, so beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease affect one of the genes which make up the uh, haemoglobin uh, protein which is in your blood which carries the oxygen around your body so when you cut yourself and you, the red stuff comes out it's the haemoglobin that makes the that is the the red that you're seeing hmm. now in beta thalassemia there are mutations in a gene called beta globin and those mutations uh cause or prevent the beta globin from being produced sufficiently now as a result uh you have an imbalance so haemoglobin is actually made up of two proteins alpha and beta globin and if you don't have enough of one in the, in this case you don't have enough of the beta you've got too much alpha globin floating around in your red blood cells and that is actually uh that actually causes toxic effects mm -hmm. for the developing red blood cell and the result of that is the red blood cells don't uh they don't develop properly and the red blood cells which do develop tend not to live uh, as long as they ought to and for the patient then the ultimate result is a very severe form of anemia okay so anemia meaning the lack of iron in the blood or? oh no it's not the lack well there are various causes of anemia but in in this case we're talking about insufficient red blood cells and so okay. insufficient oxygen being carried around the body now one of the things i always find fascinating when we talk about these genetic conditions is there is oxygen being carried around the body. There, there are red blood cells being produced. So the genetics of one of these patients can do it, but doesn't quite... Is it not do enough of it or gets it wrong? Well... It's not complete. It's not like that gene's just gone. No. So Now, well, in the case of beta thalassemia, there's more than... 200 mutations that okay. can that have the same or the, the fall into this basket and in some cases it's a very severe form in which there's very little beta globin made and uh, in those ca in those cases those patients will need regular blood transfusions up to every month they'll need an extra right. an extra you know half a liter of blood uh, and if they don't get that they will die right. okay this this will be a fatal condition and then there are other mutations which are much less severely um 
uh, affected and those people might be nearly asymptomatic they might just be a little bit tired or they might only mm. just need an occasional blood transfusion mm. at, at what point in in a person's life do they work out they have this problem is this from birth or do you does this kick in yeah this is this is really interesting and this is why it's an area of interest for the children's hospital so you actually make uh three different haemoglobins over the course of your life. You make one very early on uh, as a fetus, uh, starting at about you know, 10, 12 weeks post-conception, and that's your first fetal haemoglobin, uh, sorry, embryonic uh, haemoglobin. And then you make another one in the second half of, uh, of development, which is called fetal haemoglobin. And then in the year after you're born, that fetal haemoglobin gradually uh, is replaced by the adult form that goes on uh, to be produced th- that you that you produce for the rest of your life. Now it's it's when that switch happens from that fetal form, which is not affected by the mutation, mm-hmm. and then you start making that fetal form gets switched off and it starts being replaced by the adult beta globin, and then the patient is left without a globin to stand on because <laughs> the right. uh, the adult beta globin is not. Uh, being produced or it's not being produced sufficiently and so it's in that first year of life when the posi- when the when the the uh the condition becomes apparent hmm. do, do we have any idea what causes this um genetic problem i mean i know there are just random mutations and errors and that that, that get carried through yeah but you, you know so much so much of the, this is sort of based on things that have happened in our evolution it's amazing that you know our species sort of has carried forward this this problem well it hasn't just, you, you know as you said i mean if you don't get a blood transfusion every month you're dead so how is it that that genetic anomaly has continued through our species right. over such a long period so when you start talking about evolution that's where you put your finger on on what's going on so we have two copies of every gene in our body okay and it's just the same for the, the beta globin gene and if you look at the map, uh, the world map, and you superimpose over that where all the carriers for beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease, which is a related condition, if you look at where those uh, people uh, are found most frequently, you'll see that that correlates very strongly with the regions of the world where malaria are most common. Okay. And what is what what is, the theory is, and there's quite a bit of data to back this up, uh, that having one copy of one of these mutations actually provides the carrier with an advantage in a malarial environment. So people with that single copy of the gene will be more... Uh, more fit is the term that the, the geneticists use and th- so they'll be more able to pass on their genetic makeup to the next generation because they're effectively healthier but then if you put uh, if you have two copies of that gene then the condition becomes catastrophic and you, mm. you're no longer making sufficient hemoglobin you have all sorts of issues but there is this uh, this underlying advantage if you only have one copy of the gene so that's what serves to to maintain the gene in the population or yeah, at least this mutation see, Shane, you, needed to, you needed to study biology it's a classic first year biology example mm. of natural selection I've got a beautiful copy of Darwin's uh, book of um, <laughs> no seriously you know, I've read about 12 pages of it <laughs> mint condition <laughs> I'm touched. <laughs> That's very nice. Now, tell us, uh, Bradley, in terms of, um, you, you mentioned that uh, patients get these transfusions, but, I mean, you're obviously working down there on the genetics and treatment possibilities. I mean, what is the sort of focus in terms of your work in finding a way to get around this? I mean, transfusions obviously are not sustainable, or I guess they are if you want to stay alive, but it's not Yeah, the well, well, the transfusion, although it's a very... Uh, 
it's a very simple or relatively simple treatment. It actually carries with a lot of complications as well because okay. people with this condition have or uh, it has all these additional effects on the iron metabolism because the red blood cells are constantly being made and broken down and made and broken down and that has knock-on effects for the way the body manages the iron levels and because one of the one of the effects uh, that the body uses to try and compensate for this is that it absorbs every bit of iron it can possibly get out of the gut so uh, normally uh, the body carries iron around in in the blood attached to a, another protein and you normally have about three quarters of that protein is attached to iron and the other quarter is just bumbling around waiting to mm. find a, a, an iron molecule but in people with thalassemia they're usually running at about 100 percent of these proteins are bound to iron and then there's excess iron as well which uh, starts to accumulate in other tissues where it shouldn't be and then when people are getting transfused on top of that they're getting extra iron oh, tipped yeah. into their body extra uh, every month which has you know all these additional toxic effects and so they get other drugs as well which help help them to excrete the iron so the 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 therapy that you're giving them actually comes with this this downside yeah. Yeah. uh and I remember my wife had uh, one of these iron infusions a few years back because you know, she had anemia. And I remember looking at the side effects from the high iron levels, and they're almost the same as for low <laughs> iron. You know, like, like a lot of, you know, lethargy, all these things, where, you know, when you get that massive build-up of iron initially when you get these infusions, you know, many of the symptoms people have are very similar to what you read for low iron. I mean, they're quite yeah. severe. They're not... I mean, I mean they're, they're debilitating. Severe. They're, debilitating. They're, yeah. not, uh, they're not trivial at all. And for even for a patient who's been very well looked after over the entire... Over the course of their life um, they uh, develop all these additional issues like uh, diabetes because it affects mm, the pancreas right. uh, they develop heart conditions because it affects the heart muscle there's a whole range of other mm. issues so ultimately although the transfusion allows the patients to be to manage their condition in the long term they the quality of life suffers so how do we go after this from a sort of genetic modification point of view which i think is what you're doing yeah well uh there is uh, quite a there, there has been quite a lot of interest in that area for a long time because one of the uh well one of the benefits if you will of working on a condition that involves the blood is that the stem cells which give rise to all the cells in your blood the blood stem cells uh can be harvested from the bone marrow and that's very well established clinically how to those sorts of those sorts of procedures because people have been doing bone marrow transplants for many many years and so the uh what's what's being worked on is to take from the patient uh the stem cells which are carrying the faulty beta globin gene and then introduce a virus which carries a corrected copy of the beta globin gene and that uh, inserts itself into the the chromosomes of those stem cells, and then those stem cells are retransfused back into the patient. So that has advantages over uh, using donor bone marrow because there's no immune incompatibility mm. because it's the patient's own cells that are being returned to the patient. Uh, but there's also, you know, there's a lot of uh, technological complexity that goes along uh, just to. Mm. Just to uh, develop. Well, first of all, there's been a lot of work to develop the viral constructs that are that can be delivered back into the patient. And then the other thing about beta globin is because we're all sitting here absolutely full to the brim of hemoglobin. Beta globin is one of the the most highly expressed genes in the body, mm. uh, and so you have to be able to produce uh, bucket loads of that protein all through the rest of your life. So actually, just developing the the actual viral vector, we we call them vectors, just to develop those vectors successfully is a great deal of work. Mm. 
I'm, I'm wondering, so you, you're talking about um, manipulating the, the genetics of stem cells and putting them back into a person. How readily does that person's body accept that? Just go, yeah, okay, we've got a new copy, we'll work with that now. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really interesting question and it's one we're still getting... Uh, we're still getting on top of. So there's only been, in the case of beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease, there's only been a small number of patients that have been treated with this, uh, with this approach. And it's being run by a company out of, out of the US. And it's only about a dozen patients to, at, at the current time. The very first patient who was treated has gone on for about eight, eight or nine years now, uh, very, very well and has been, um, transfusion free and up and walking around and, you know, showing a massive improvement over, over his quality of life previously. And then now we're probably less than two years into the next cohort of patients. And that's that issue of how, how, readily the 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 gene will be maintained that's one we're still not really on top of we can see at least in the first patient there's been successful long-term production of of beta globin from the gene um but this, but your cells have natural defence mechanisms yeah. whereby bits of foreign DNA get recognised and mm. and you know may cause the cell to to uh, self destruct uh, as you know this sort of uh, this sort of inbuilt defence mm. mechanism. So, but we've still we've still got a good deal to learn mm. about. The the technology that you're talking about is obviously amazing, but also quite new and presumably, you know, quite tricky. Is have we got a big problem, you know, a big mismatch with the fact that the majority of people suffering from these diseases are living in, you know, really poor parts of the world? Yes, and that's one of my uh, that's one of my uh, sort of pet issues personally mm-hmm. with the, with the field in that we're devoting a great deal of uh, time and effort and expense to developing what a very very sort of blue sky science fiction you know type of approaches but yeah as I said earlier the majority of the patients are in malarial regions of the world and a lot of those are the less developed countries in the world so there is a real mismatch between what we can do and what people can afford to do but then there's another approach that we're looking into as well and it comes back to what I was saying earlier about the different haemoglobins that you make through your life there are some people that don't switch off that Mm. fetal haemoglobin and they go on into adulthood making reasonably high high concentrations of that fetal haemoglobin with no ill effects whatsoever and if if you happen to carry uh, one of those genotypes, so you're making lots of fetal hemoglobin, and you happen to also have a beta thalassemia genotype, you have a much less severe form of the mm. condition because mm. the the fetal gene compensates for the mutated adult gene. Mm. And so we're looking at ways can we can we develop drugs as you know sort of a simple, preferably orally available drug that will reactivate. The expression of that fetal gene into into adulthood, or eventually to stop the switch happening in the first mm. place, if that person's. Uh, well, you need to you need to know ahead of time yeah. if you want to stop mm. the stop the switch from happening, and it's mm. generally only when it, the the symptoms start to start to appear in the infant that uh, that they get diagnosed. But I guess if both parents suffer, if both parents are known to be carriers, then mm. yes, you can. There can there is genetic testing that can be done ahead of time. I suppose. Mm. Yes. Look, it's super interesting stuff, Bradley, and I think uh, I, I vote for putting the virus into the mosquitoes that are causing malaria in the first place. Maybe that's a way to distribute it throughout the. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, Two birds with one stone. You crazier things have been done. I'm just saying, if a paper comes out on it, make sure you acknowledge me. Um, <laughs> You've just given me an idea for a new 
research going. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're doing all sorts of weird manipulation of mosquitoes these days, so yeah. it's not actually that far from um, from where we could maybe see things going. Bradley, thanks so much for talking to us uh, about this. It's, uh, it, I mean, I, I know it's a relatively smaller set of the population that's um, affected by this, but uh, if you're one of those people, it is a debilitating condition that's pretty bad. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop mm. you there because it's actually one of the most common inherited disorders in the world. There's about uh, in beta thalassemia and sickle cell disease is about 300,000 severely affected um, infants born worldwide every year. Worldwide, yeah. yeah. And so that, that's, that's actually a big health burden because they they you know they go on and they're being treated through their whole through their whole yeah. lives. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's I mean I, I hear that number and I think that's that's an extraordinary burden. Mm. But when you when you put it relative to some of the other you know infectious diseases and so forth, policymakers just won't pay attention to that in the way that they should. And and I think it's one of these smaller areas where you know especially many of the genetic disorder areas and rare diseases they don't get the money that they should because they're not you're talking hundreds of thousands you're not talking you know in the millions no the, yeah, we're not, well, we're not it's a real shame but because yeah. it's a lifetime yeah, yeah, it's a yeah lifetime, you're stuck with it for the whole, uh, whole life yeah, yeah lifetime yeah. condition well thanks so much for coming in and uh, good luck with the work and hopefully the uh, I mean it sounds like you've got a few approaches on the go so hopefully one of them will, will bear some fruit soon well cross fingers thank okay. you Dr Bradley McColl is from the Cell and Gene Therapy Laboratory at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute Triple Ah. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on uh, 3 Triple R, and uh, we are going to be talking to another guest in a moment who we have on the phone. It's Dr. Carissa Klein. She's from the University of Queensland, and... Um, part of the Australian uh, Research Council Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions. Carissa, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Great, thanks. Excellent. Now, you're um, working in the area of marine conservation. This is something normally one of our other shows on Triple R would, would dive into, but we've, we've grabbed it today. Um, and in particular, these marine protected areas around the world and the number of species or marine species that are essentially unprotected. And you've been looking at what that number is. Can you talk us through that research and um, where we currently stand in terms of our um, marine protected areas? Yeah, no worries. So basically we were looking at marine protected areas and they're increasingly being designated across the world um, as there's a lot of international mandates asking countries to put in more protected areas. So what we wanted to ask is what are these marine protected areas actually protecting? So we looked globally at all the marine protected areas that exist and worked out what species they're protecting. And we looked at 17,400 species, and we found that almost all of those species have less than 10% of their range protected in a marine protected area, which is not a good story. And several hundred species don't have any protection whatsoever. So, so how did you go about determining what, what the actual range was for so many species? Is that already known, or is it yeah. something you had to work out? Yeah, there's new data available that's not our data. Um, another group modeled 17,000 different species based on um, various char- characteristics. It's done all over the world on the land, but we just hadn't had that data for the ocean until recently. So, um, yeah, so it's modeled distributions of where all the fish live, where all the crabs live, the whales, you know, all everything, the birds, everything that uses the ocean. Hmm. And and which countries are sort of stacking up as the most problematic? I mean, I, I, <laughs> you know, I'm hoping yeah. you don't say Australia, but I, I'm disturbed to think you probably will. <laughs> no, actually, Australia's not doing too bad. I mean, there's still problems in Australia, but Australia has a 
pretty good, on a global standard, it has a pretty good network of marine protected areas, primarily because of the Great Barrier Reef um, zones there. But I'd say the countries that aren't um, doing that great, there's a couple of regions. So the Coral Triangle, which is just north of Australia, which has countries like Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, Malaysia, um, there's a lot of room for improvement up there, which is, um, there's a lot of opportunity as well, because there's a lot of international uh, collaborations and initiatives trying to help those countries um, put in marine protected areas, and Australia is playing a big role in that as well. Um, the United States and Canada aren't doing so well. Brazil's not doing so well, so and the list kind of goes on. But those are some of the the hot spots. Hmm. And when you look at the you know this big group of over seventeen thousand, there must be some species that are sort of better off than others. So I mean, if if I was a species that sort of lived, you know, part of my range was in a protected area and part of it wasn't, I can imagine, you know, I might get by. Did did you find that sort of um, thing when you were looking at at these species and some i assume some of them are just in really big trouble because they're completely outside of these areas is that right yeah absolutely there's um we found about almost 300 species that lie entirely outside of a marine marine protected area so there's absolutely no um, protection from uh say a no fishing zone for about 300 species around the world and then several species just have you know a little tiny bit of their range in a protected area Hi, Carissa. It's Dr. Jen. I'm, um, you know, when we talk about national parks on land, people always joke that it's just the places that nobody else wanted. They weren't chosen because of their particular um, benefit for biodiversity conservation or anything else, just because no politician could see another use for it, essentially. Is that the issue we're facing here, that we've just designated these marine protected areas because of political or other reasons and they weren't chosen with, with species conservation in mind at all? Yeah, that's absolutely right. We have the same problems in the ocean as we do on the land, and we've seen that here in Australia as well. They recently put in um, a, a, quite a huge um, area of marine protected areas offshore of all around Australia, but a lot of those places are protecting exactly what you're saying, where they're not interested in oil and gas exploration, there's not much fishing going on. So they're protecting... Um, really unproductive habitat for for species so that's exactly right so you know the way forward and what we're really pushing and looking for people to do is when they're putting in marine protected areas putting them in really strategic areas that you're going to get sort of the most benefit um and also thinking about these other uses and trying to you know minimize the impact on the fishing and oil and gas industries as well Hey, Carissa, it's Chris KP here. Um, just following on hey. from that, that question, um, so is it your suggestion that we need to move the protection areas or just make them bigger or is it a combination or am I oversimplifying uh, I would, it? Uh, are you talking about in Australia or just worldwide? Um, generally, actually. Yeah, generally. So I think the, um, I think probably the best way forward is to evaluate what we currently have protected and if those places aren't contributing towards the protection of biodiversity, then absolutely start again and identify the places that are going to best protect biodiversity. So it's not necessarily that bigger is better, definitely not advocating for that. It's more about the quality of, of where your marine sure. protected area is. Yeah. What, one thing I'm curious about, Chris, is when we talk about finding uh, you know good areas to protect and making sure that biodiversity is there, I mean, we all know that the climate around the world is changing and changing quite rapidly. Uh, 
Are we going to be able to make the determination of where we should be putting these protected areas given these changes are occurring? I mean, is there, can we predict yeah. where we should be protecting, like, for, for the next 30 years rather than right now? Or, or are we just going to have to, you know, sort of stab in the dark and hope for the best? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And um, kind of what we're looking at doing right now is finding those sort of no-regrets areas. So there's places that are going to be good now, and there's places that we think are going to be good in the future based on looking at where species are expected to move. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty because we don't know exactly what mm. how things are going to respond. But um, in some of our, our papers, we've found these no-regrets areas that we think are going to be good through time for a range of species. Mm. And that's probably the best way forward. Now, now you've put this uh, work out. Um, it's there for everyone to read. But what's, what's the approach in terms of um, getting the governments of the world to actually take some action in this area? Is there a, an international approach that's going forward to do this? Yeah, absolutely. We have um, a lot of work coming out of our Centre of Excellence in marine protected area design and doing it in a way that's um, not only good for biodiversity but good for industry as well and sort of following those guidelines as people put in their marine protected areas um, would be the way forward. And there's a lot of opportunity right now because the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is the big uh, global initiative that drives protected area establishment on the land and the sea, is asking that every country set aside 10% of their ocean and 17% of their land into a protected area. So countries are receiving a lot of funding to do this, a lot of support. So doing that in a way that's going to um, give them the best outcome is uh, definitely what, what we're pushing for. Let's, let's hope that they do that. Chris Klein, thanks so much for talking to us and um, keep up the good work up there at the uh, Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions. We've spoken to many of your colleagues over the last year and it seems like some really, really great research coming out that's uh, highlighting some of these problems. So Thanks for having a chat to us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. That was Chris Klein from uh, the University of Queensland uh, and part of the Centre of Excellence for um, Environmental Decisions. 102.7. Uh, we're back. I've just looked at the crew and I've said, who can do a piece of news in one minute? Chris KP ran out of the room and he's back now. You said now. three minutes. Oh, sorry. Oh. I've got, got a minute. Dr. I can do Jen? a minute. Okay, so cryogenic freezing, right? There's people paying megabucks and more than 100 people around the world have said, I want to be frozen so yeah. I can be thawed out and I'll be great. Just get at, a, at a time when the technology can fix your problems. But the problem is, like, you know, if you think about a <laughs> strawberry that you freeze and then you thaw out because of the like ice crap. crystals that forms, well, it just goes to mush because mm. we're full of water. So same problem. Mm. So that's where cryogenic Cryogenics come in, comes in. Cryogenics is where you use like a medical grade antifreeze to stop those ice crystals ever forming. So when you thaw out, you don't have the ice damage. But the problem is that the chemicals that we use in cryogenics have made our brains kind of dehydrate and shrink. And so then the brain is pretty much, you know, non-functional when it thaws out. But this week, a team out of California announced that they've got a brand new technique, totally different technique, and they have uh, preserved and then defrosted a rabbit brain, and it came out perfectly intact, including all of the connections between the individual neurons, which are called the connectome, which are considered to be vital for memory and personality wow. and that stuff. So for the first time ever, we have a mammal brain that was frozen, thawed, and it was perfectly intact, and we would think that it would, would continue to well, work. Will that work for people who are already frozen, or is or are they kind of... No, Late, so it's a wow. future technique. So, so if we know that it's too late for them, presumably we can just get rid of them and the money goes into, you know... <laughs> and use the space <laughs> for somebody else. Yeah. Well, they've already paid their money, so, we're, well, you know... Because there are a lot problem. of rabbits out there. Yeah. <laughs>
Anyway, so big news that we now know how to preserve and thaw a human, not a human. I take that back. A, a human mammal brain. <laughs> a human that likes carrots. No, a rabbit brain to maintain all of its neuronal connections, which oh, is very oh, delicate. I want to see him do it with a live rabbit and then freeze and bring the rabbit back to life before they're shoving me in something like that. Well, they've shown that worms, they've done it with worms, and the worms so retain memories. <laughs> I like that you're talking about me, and then she referred to worms. Yeah. It's kind of insulting. Close. But the worms retained memories. So a bit like Dr. Shane. Yeah. How, like how, do you tell if, Shane. how do you tell if worms retain memories? Oh, you train them oh, on yeah. food things. Yeah. You train, oh, train them on yeah. food and then where they see whether they can remember. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, just like Dr. Shane. Really. Similar <laughs> techniques on me. Yep. The connections are becoming clear. Yeah. Big thank you to our guests today for coming in, especially the ones talking about uh, the gravity waves, which was a big news during the week, so we'll keep following that as that progresses because that's going to explode over coming months. Thank you to my team for coming in today, for live, uh, for doing our Twitter feed. I'm Dr Shane. Until next week, remember, science is everywhere, and uh, we will talk to you in exactly seven days, minus one hour. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.